The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM. It all happens here. Now, a cracking summer read has been produced by David MacDonald in collaboration with Mick Clifford, who, of course, is so well known to you here on The Last Word in Today FM. And the book is called Unlocked, an Irish prison officer's story. Before I talk to you, Dave, I want to talk to you, Mick Clifford, about why you got involved in this story. Well, man, I suppose I, I've been writing about prisons for a number of years. And through that, I got to, I met Dave and I got to know him and... Um, you know, the way you, the nature of these things, you take tack with people at various points. And I was just talking to him one day and I suppose there's accumulation of him talking to him. I said, gee, this is some of those stories, Dave. It's unbelievable. Would you have any interest if we write a book? And he was up for it immediately and uh, just took off from there, thankfully. There are know? some of the best known prisoners in the country feature. That's right, yeah. Dave, is, he's worked with all them. And the thing about Dave's story is he had such a varied career. I mean, he's worked with everything from, there's real searing chapter about AIDS prisoners in Mount Joy and then the subversives as they were called the IRA and the other paramilitary organisations in Port Leash which it was quite amazing the, the the way that they were held and then you move on he was working with the operational support group which whose job is effectively to stop drugs and phones principally contraband general coming into prisons and some of the stories there and some of the ways people try to bring it in and, and the methods that Dave and his colleagues use to stop them it's, it's, it's jaw-dropping stuff some of it. Dave, I'm going to start with the AIDS epidemic of the 1980s because it is quite shocking to realise that the ignorance of the response at the time by the prison authorities was effectively to put dying people into a basement without light, almost to to wither away almost. Yeah, it was, Matt. And look, there was a lot of um, myths around AIDS at the time. Um, You know, people thought if someone spat at them or you were in contact with their sweat or even from a cup that they drank out of that you could get contaminated and catch the virus. Um, I was fortunate. My wife was uh, the chief um, researcher, um, information officer with the HSE at the time on the AIDS programme. So I had a lot more knowledge, I suppose, than most people. But it was a knee-jerk reaction by the Irish Prison Service. So the prisoners were put into two areas, uh, primarily, uh, didn't matter what prison they were in, they were brought to these areas, uh, in Mount Joy, which was the base, which is under the B-Wing, which is a basement. So it was deprived of any sort of natural light, not that there's a lot in Mount Joy anyway, but this was dingy, it was rodent infested, um, the cells were mank, they had no in-cell sanitation, um, their food was served to them on paper plates, paper cups, because it had to come a distance. It was usually quite bad by the time it got there because everything had to be disposed of. And um, we kind of tell a part of the story of, of that chapter is where I take a prisoner, a very young guy, across to the Matter Hospital, which is literally across the road from Mount Joy Prison. And very often we'd walk prisoners over if they, unless they were very bad because it's not the distance is tiny. And um, brought this man in to a consultation room. Um, doctor came in. You knew by the doctor's demeanour that this was not going to be good news. And you have to stay with him because I, he I was handcuffed to him, yeah. yeah. Um, there was two other colleagues with me. Um, the doctor asked, could he speak with his patient alone? There was a window in the room, so I just turned to the prisoner and said, look, you know, I can't. And I nodded to my two colleagues who went outside the door. And with that, the doctor, as nicely as he could, but being honest to him, basically told him he was months to live. The problem with that was then we went outside, we lit a cigarette, we had a bit of a chat, and uh, he just turned to me and he said to me in colourful language, 
I'm not going to be around for long. I, I didn't answer him because I had actually no, no answer. The conversation continued with him. He had three kids. And then I brought him back and I put him into this hellhole, I suppose I could describe it as. Um, he stayed there for a couple of months. And then I think he was moved to a hospice out in Blanchestown where he passed away. And um, as I say, he had three kids. You know, he was a young guy, but he had three kids and he was a drug addict. And he contacted the virus through sharing needles or whatever. And um, look, it was actually something that I buried in my head for a long, long time. And it was only when I was talking to Mick. And the brilliance of Mick Clifford is that he didn't just put the words into the book. He put the people into the place. So you can, you're in the cell, you're in the base, you're in the yard, you're in wherever. And um, I had actually put it to one side because I needed to bury it because it wasn't a nice memory. And then with the book, and it was actually a little upsetting and I'm now shrinking violet by any means, but I actually, thinking back on it, it was, you know, it wasn't a nice time. I remember um, not that long ago meeting a lady that I worked with in, in that area and uh, she had rose to the ranks quite high and um, we met at the training college and we were chatting about the old days and chit-chatting one thing or another and this conversation came up and she actually broke down to the extent that I had to put her sitting down. She just bawled, you know, and this wasn't, this was a, you know, tough lady who'd seen a lot. So it wasn't, no, it wasn't a nice time. Mick, what have you learned about the conditions in our prisons? I mean, are they where decency, decent conditions are for human beings, no matter what they may have done to result in them being imprisoned? Yeah, Matt, I think it, I think it was Dostoevsky, the Russian writer, who said, you know, show me your prisons and I'll show you what kind of society you have. And by that standard, we don't have a very good society. A lot of what Dave has seen, a lot of what's in the book, you know, it should, I mean, there's a lot of dark comic stuff in there as well. But in terms of the day to day stuff, you know, the, first of all, the people who are sent to prison, huge proportion, repeated research has shown this, have mental health difficulties of one sort or another. If, for example, they were born in a better neighbourhood, they may well have ended up treated and have a very productive life instead largely because of the conditions that they may have they end up getting involved in crime they end up being sent to prison the other thing is efforts at rehabilitation are nowhere near they should be and Dave he, he described to me in vivid detail about the pure grind of boredom for people who, who have absolutely no work to do a very small proportion of them at the start anyway had anything to do with themselves all day so it's not right in that regard You've actually preempted the question I was just about to ask Dave which is about rehabilitation I mean does our prison service make any real effort to rehabilitate people so that they are likely to be peaceful, better functioning members of society on release from prison? Matt, I think all you have to do really look is to look at the figures for reoffending. Um, I mean, in my three decades in the prison, it wouldn't have been unusual to see the same prisoner come back in two dozen times. So, you know, and many of them would be coming back in. If you've done even, uh, say, what would be considered a reasonably small stretch of four or five years um, in custody, you go out into the workplace, you have no CV, you have nothing to show for those years. You know, you have nothing to give an employer. And the fact then that the employer is looking at you that you've done something wrong. Like, let's not, you know, you have to kind of get this in perspective. For every prisoner that's in behind the wall of a prison, they've probably hurt somebody, either physically, mentally, financially, and are even a lot worse. So there isn't a lot of sympathy for prisoners. But as Mick said, like we judge our society and how we look after the vulnerable and a lot of prisoners are very vulnerable. Are they always deserving of sympathy though? Because some of them and some of the names that pop up in this book are yeah. quite evil people. Absolutely. There's, I've dealt with the most evil 
uh, tugs on this whoever walked this island. Um, they and they and they're not going to be rehabilitated. There, there is no nobody's going to rehabilitate them. They're not going to be any better twenty years later than they were when they came in. But there, there are a lot of people in custody because we don't have the mental the mental services and psychiatric hospitals don't have the beds now. I mean, when I was an assistant chief officer, I would have begged and pleaded at times to try and get prisoners up to um, Dundrum where the central mental hospital is housed. And it was impossible, absolutely impossible. So a lot of prisoners, I mean, I'd love someone, I can't get it, but I'd love to see the medication bill for prisons. Um, it's going to be huge. But there's an awful lot of self-medication, isn't there, as well? Of course. Use yeah. of hard drugs. And yeah. Mick has alluded to this already, your efforts to try and stop those getting in. I mean, how sincere are those efforts? Because there is a suspicion that maybe at times uh, some of these drugs are left into the prisons because that keeps the prison population calm or docile. See, what happened in 2008 after the daily phone call from E1 Landon in Port Leash to Joe Duffy, um, the OSG was formed. The John, da- John Daly, the criminal, he rang into Joe Duffy's live line and there was a major outcry after it. He rang in from his prison cell. And How a, did he have the phone? Exactly. And he, had to st- he, st- he, he came off the line midstream because quite obviously a prison officer had walked into the cell on him and there was an outcry after that and, and Dave will tell you that, that's what set up the OSG and Dave was, was, that, was in the unit from the start. Yeah, so so the operations support group was set up, and it was unique. It was a specialised unit. But what we they did was they made it separate from the main prison. So we would work out of nine sites, nine prisons, but we weren't answerable to the governor or chiefs of those prisons, and that caused a little bit of problems because governors are very um, protective of their own little area. But we weren't answerable to them. So if you were on the OSG, it was a transfer. It was, um, and you we answered to our bosses in Ardnagria, which is up in Arbor Hill. And we were usually successful, you know, to the extent that I had debt threats put on me, like level five. So well, That's what I was going to come to as well. I mean, this is the thing, I would have thought a job, that if you're dealing with these major drug criminals and the IRA people who are named in the book, and if they take a dislike to what you have done, the book clearly details the times when you might have been under threat within the prison walls, but even outside... And for your family members, how fearful are you that you could end up because you do something that these thugs dislike, that their associates on the outside might do something to you? Look, there's always that possibility. You know, like when I grew up in Portlaoise, I grew up 400 metres from Portlaoise prison. When I went to school, the security around some of the prison officers back then was massive. They couldn't go on holidays without first notifying the Department of Justice. Um, they stuck very much as a group together. So they drank together, they socialised together, they played football together. You know, they stayed within a very small unit and nothing was ever spoken about outside the walls of the prison. Um, yes, there was a threat. Yes, I did, took precautions. Um, my house got a serious enough upgrade. Um, I got to learn how to check for things like pipe bombs and taking different routes to work and what have you. Um, and But it didn't stop us. It didn't stop, you know, and I'm very lucky to be married to who I'm married to because she's a very strong lady. And I've never, a lot of people will go to work in the prison, come out of it, never speak about it. Um, that wasn't the case with me. And I think that was a huge help to me over 30 years that I could talk to my wife, explain what my working day was like. And uh, so she was very familiar with the workings of the prison. But the physical threats, I mean, there were even occasions within the prison where you felt that you were potentially left in situations where you could have been physically harmed. Yeah, look, sometimes there were, I was maybe lucky and unlucky. I mean, there was an occasion where 
I got caught down at the end of E1 Landon, which is that big block in Port Leash that houses on the E1. It's what we call the heavies. It's the John Gilligan's, the Means, the Dutchy Hollands, uh, Christy Kinnan, all these were housed there. And then 234 is INLA, IRA. And um, trouble broke out on the Landon and I found myself isolated um, at the end of it. And as I walked up, I kind of thought, I'm in serious butter here. And uh, one gentleman, Paul Ward, um, saw me and thought all his birthdays had come together because he was one of these defaulters, which maybe we get time to talk about. One of the prisoners took uh, five prison officers hostage for over 50 hours in Mount Joy. And then when we got them to Port Leash, we housed these individuals and the terminology came that were the defaulters. And we, we housed them in, we gave them a quite a difficult time. So Ward saw me coming and started coming for me with a shiv, which is a homemade knife. And uh, John Gilligan gave an order for me not to be touched. So he's kind of saved my bacon, believe it or not. It's funny enough, well, not funny enough, I suppose the bit that I found difficult even with all of that is, is because Gilligan and Meehan and Dutchy Holland, who you also mentioned, all of these people are associated with the murder of a very close friend of mine, Veronica Guerin. Yeah. And I suppose you do, in some respects, humanise them while also pointing out just how dangerous they are as individuals. Yeah, look, Dutchy Holland, um, as I, I would have nearly let him mind my grandchildren. He was came across as this mild-mannered man, never um, put his head above where he shouldn't. Um, but he was a cold-blooded killer. Absolutely, but that's the thing, you had to keep that in mind. You, you Like... You, you don't become a friend with a prisoner. You, you know, you, no, it doesn't matter who they are. It doesn't matter whether they're only in for shoplifting. Um, you certainly don't become uh, friends with someone like Dutchy Holland. But like it's famously said, John Gilligan said that the only prisoner he, or only person he ever feared was Dutchy Holland. Uh, yet he was this mild-mannered man. But you see, this is the other thing that, again, you know, John Gilligan was never convicted of Veronica's murder, but... I do remember when he savagely beat her yes. about a year before yeah. she was murdered. And a complete thug of an individual, John Gilligan. John Gilligan is a thug. There's no, there's no question about it. And then to see that he was, for a period of time, allowed to effectively run things as he wanted in Port Leash before a new prison governor decided this is not on. Governor Whelan, who's a governor I have absolutely massive respect for um, he took over Port Leash and he changed everything. Small little things, like Gilligan walked into the governor's parade room, is where they can, if a prisoner wants to make a request for something, they can meet the governor. The governor holds a parade Monday to Friday for half an hour or whatever. Gilligan walked in, and the first thing that Gilligan noticed was there was no chair for Gilligan anymore. Governor Whelan was sitting behind the desk and he wanted his chair. He actually thought he was going to go out and get one. Governor Whelan said, No, I'm the boss here, you stand in front of me. Then the next words out of Gilligan was, um, well, I represent, and he got cut short by Ned, who said, you represent nobody. And again, language would have been a wee bit more colourful. You represent nobody. Now, Governor Whelan is a big man. Um, I found him just absolutely brilliant to work for. Certainly one of the best governors and managers that I ever worked under. He had the nickname Nike, which was just do it, you know, so. <laughs> okay, it's an interesting point, Matt, that you, that you make there. I mean, it, there's an element of the Tony Soprano about it, like, you know, that there that there's a personal element to some of these characters and that they would have encountered when they were behind the prison walls in that environment. Yet, at their core, 
there's nearly a sense of evil to the extent that that exists. And, and it, it's chilling that they can be like that, that they can come across in, in one particular way. And then at the same time, even I'd say when the likes of Dave and his colleagues turn their back, they're completely different individuals. It's, it's, it's a chilling kind of thing when you think about it. Okay, I'm going to have to call a halt to it here. Unfortunately, we're out of the time. It doesn't give me the opportunity to get into the IRA and Port Leash and all the rest of it. But it certainly, I think, uh, will whet the appetite of those listeners as to getting a copy of this book, Unlocked, An Irish Prison Officer's Story. Uh, David MacDonald, Mick Clifford, thank you very much Thanks for being Matt. with us. Thanks, Matt. Thank you, Matt. The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Weekdays from 4.30. Today.